Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's show is a conversation with Steve Flink, the Hall of Fame tennis writer. You can find his work on tennis.com. His latest book is Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. We have this conversation following every single major and we look forward to it very much. So we went pretty long and uh, I decided to split this one up into two parts. The first part will be discussing strictly the Nadal-Medvedev final. Rafael Nadal over Daniil Medvedev in five sets, coming back from two sets to love. Plus, Medvedev and Nadal-centric discussion in the bigger picture, their entire tournament and their run, and where they're at in their respective careers, perhaps. Um, So that will be part one. Part two will be a conversation about everything else that occurred at the Australian Open. Talk about Alexander Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Felix Auger-Aliassime, Carlos Alcaraz, perhaps some others, Matteo Berrettini, and uh, working backwards at the end of that one, getting to the Novak Djokovic situation saga that occurred before the event. So again, part one, Nadal Medvedev. Without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We're joined once again by the Hall of Fame tennis writer, Steve Flink. His latest book is Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And this is a conversation that I think we both look forward to after every single major. Steve, thanks for coming on so we can recap the 2022 Australian Open. Gil, we've had a blast doing these recaps over the years, and I, I, I don't think this will be any exception. As usual, we start with the men's final. And I want to start with a, a pretty general question. Rafael Nadal beats Daniil Medvedev in five sets from his entire title run and the context around it to just the the win in the final over Medvedev itself. What stood out to you about the last two weeks for Rafael Nadal? Oh, that's, 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 that's not an easy one. I mean, I would say that what stood out was I never think, I, I believe that he never, he never believed it was really going to happen and that that actually helped him out psychologically immensely is that, it was such a long shot considering where he'd come from and, and having COVID the whole second half of the year with a foot. And I mean, not being able to practice all the things that he talked about frequently over there. You weigh all that in and then you say, OK, coming into the tournament, he's, it looks like he's going to have to play. And before Novak was deported, he's going to have to play Zarev conceivably to play Djokovic to play Medvedev, have to be all three in order. It just didn't seem like that was possible then Djokovic doesn't play it still looked like he'd have to play Zarev in the quarters I never thought never liked that matchup for him at this moment especially coming off the layoff and yet then Zarev loses to Shapovalov then then he plays Shapovalov and you think he's in real trouble with the heat stroke and the stomach and he's wobbly and he and somehow he escaped in the fifth set after losing the third and fourth and and I think it was at that point for him and, and the rest of us that we suddenly realized there was going to be a shot. But you still had to believe, Gil. I'm sure you felt the same way. All things being equal, it was going to be Medvedev's match to win. He'd, he'd come off the last major, the confidence boost of beating Djokovic in the finals of the U.S. Open. You know, he'd, he'd won his last match with Rafa at the year-end championships at the end of 2020. So, And yes, he'd been pushed to five sets himself by Felix Algar-Elysian but, but, and saved a match point. But you felt like he was primed after beating Sitsavas. So that, so to make a long story short, coming into the final, I felt the odds were decidedly against Nadal 
because it was asking a lot of him, especially to play a long best of five set final, given that he didn't have the proper preparation that he's so accustomed to. And he's playing a guy as, as tenacious and durable as, as Medvedev usually is. So I, I think it's, an, it's, I think it will go down the comeback in the final combined with just winning this tournament un, under these circumstances. It, it, it'll be the, the it'll be right up there among his most gratifying triumphs. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I called it his most unexpected run to yeah. a major title because of yeah. all of the things you mentioned, but uh, back to what, what you started with, with the psychological factor. It's funny you say that because it's definitely something that we talked about in 2017 when Roger Federer won that Australian open and he was coming off injury and he was seated lower than usual. And both of them were 35 years old. So I've found it to be an interesting parallel between Federer and Nadal, 35, come off injury, unexpected Australian Open title. Yeah, good, good, good analogy, good parallel. And of course, Rafa was the victim of that one. I mean, Rafa was Roger's victim that day after leading 3-1 in the fifth. That's the other thing that I think makes this so remarkable is that Nadal, after the match, was the first to admit that his mind was wandering to some of those really sharp disappointments that he suffered through the years in Australia after, because he'd last won this title in 2009 over Roger. But after that, he had lost that heartbreaking final to Novak in 2012, five hours, 53 minutes, where Rafa led 4-2, 30-15 in the fifth set and had an open court for a passing shot. He was so close to being at 5-2 in the fifth and didn't get there and lost. And then the heartbreaker to Roger in 2017, where he had 3-1 in the fifth. In between, he loses to Stan Vavrenka with a bad back. So there's just been all of these moments and misfortunes for Nadal at that tournament uh, that had that had led to him only having one title, which which was surprising given his, the, that he has four U.S. Opens, that he's proven how great he can be on hard court. So I just think that's another thing that makes it so remarkable is that he would have all of those all of those issues swirling in his mind and 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 admitting it afterwards too you you think he'd try to get it out of his mind but i think somehow he used that he somehow used it to fuel him to inspire him to say maybe this is my day i'm not giving in i won't quit and and so it, it it's remarkable how what how, how it all turned out in the end i maybe you call it a bit like Federer in 17 as you said maybe there's some destiny to this because mm -hmm. you, you put all the pieces together and it's it just seems as if it was almost meant to be Certainly, mentally, it was a, a Titan-like performance from Nadal, the kind that, that we are used to seeing uh, throughout his career. But physically, what happened in, in the Medvedev match is, I think, the most difficult thing to explain about the match, which is that in the early stages, Medvedev was the player who looked stronger and was the player who was consistently outlasting Nadal in the very many lengthy rallies that the two were engaging in for the first two sets. There was a shift in this match where no longer was Medvedev happy to play those super long rallies. And Nadal looked like the fresher and the, the more physically fit player. So there was that, that turnaround. That, sorry to interrupt you. That is such a crucial point. Because Medvedev alluded to it a bit after the match in the presentation. Don't you ever, I, he's how he talked to Rafa right after and said, don't you ever get tired. And I, I, I think it, that tells you two things. One, 
Rafa knows how to pace himself and, and, and he was, his physical resilience was astounding. And that too, Medvedev maybe needs to look at his training regimen that I don't think that you should be giving away. Uh, Rafa's giving 10 years away to him. You're in your mid twenties, you're 25, he's 35. That shouldn't be happening, but it clearly did. I couldn't agree more that on top of the, of the uh, immense physical climb, uh, the, the mental climb that Nadal had to make to come from two sets down, all the emotional toll of that, the fact that he, he sensed it himself, what you just said, he felt at a certain point, I'm stronger than this guy. And you could see it. I think you could start to see it as early as the, uh, the middle of the third set. There were some signs even mm-hmm. a bit in the second set when Medvedev was feeling the strain and he managed to pull it out. But definitely by the third set, you sense that he, did, he didn't believe in his legs anymore. He didn't think he was as strong as he needed to be. And Nadal, nobody is better at sensing a vulnerability in an opponent than Nadal. I think as much as it is also, and, and definitely a physical thing, I do wonder, was Nadal digging deeper in the, in the third set, in the fourth set? Was he kind of, you know, I think there was some mind over matter happening in this match because in the fifth set, Medvedev looked a little bit stronger again, which tells me that he just, when he wasn't ahead on the scoreboard, he decided to dig in a little bit more. And I just, I wonder if with the cushion that Medvedev had, if he just wasn't quite willing to suffer as much as Nadal was, and Nadal loves to talk about willingness to suffer for his entire career. It's interesting. Now, this this one I might slightly disagree with you, only in the se- about Medvedev in the fifth. Yes, I agree. At the very in that surge back from five three to uh, to five all, and Rafa mm-hmm. serving for the match at five four thirty love and not closing it. I did think yeah, there was a little sign of physical resurgence from Medvedev there, but I didn't see it consistently. You know, he had himself in a bind. He almost worked his way out of it. You have to say, Gil, that we've talked a lot about the physical. Then you have to weigh in what Medvedev, his remarks after the match, the long diatribe that he went on about uh, the kid talking about himself as the kid and how he'd grown up with a dream and how his dream was being shattered. And the essence of the spiel was that he's only appreciated in Russia. And if there was a hardcore tournament around the time of Roland Garris of Wimbledon, he'd play that tournament and he's not sure he'll play beyond 30. And he was definitely, he was drowning himself in a sea of self-pity. That's how I looked at that. And so that tells you a bit about what he was thinking during the match. And I'm a little puzzled by that. No doubt the crowd was 99% for Rafa. And I know that's difficult. And Djokovic has dealt with that many times especially against Federer, it's, you, it's, it can't be a pleasant experience. On the other hand, Medvedev is, is a, is a, has proven himself to be a champion, and he, and he dealt with a U.S. Open crowd that was ready to erupt at any instant for Novak Djokovic to try to win the Grand Slam last September. And Medvedev just sort of stared them down and said, I'm here to win, and did. So I'm a little puzzled that he would have found this crowd so objectionable. Yes, there are times that they were a little rude, Sometimes uneducated tennis fans would do that screaming out in the middle of a point. It can happen anywhere. But why he was feeling that sorry for him, I, I would have liked to see Medvedev place a little bit more of the blame on himself. He did give Rafa some credit, but I don't think he should be pointing the finger elsewhere and, act, and acting like such a total victim because he's the one who had the two set lead. He's the one who led 3-2, love 40 in the third to perhaps break the match wide open. 
And, and so it's not as if the crowd suddenly stopped him there. He just didn't come through in the clutch. And I, and I think he, he may have thought, Gil, you know, at that stage, by the way, at two sets of 11 on the verge of a break in the third, that surely Rafa couldn't stay with him. Surely Rafa wasn't prepared to stay with him for two and a half more hours. It was impossible. I think he, a part of him thought he had him. Yeah. I thought it was cumulative. I don't think it was just that match, but I think in the Tsitsipas match, the crowd was for Stefanos, large Greek population in Melbourne. Uh, yeah. He played he played Kyrgios early in the tournament and and had to deal with the the hostility of that crowd. So I think, you know, throughout the two weeks, it kind of wore on Daniil. And then, you know, the one thing that, and I'll get to, to some other things where in a sense, I, I very much agree with you that Medvedev needs to, look at himself. Um, the other thing that I, I saw that uh, I felt he did have a right to, to really be upset by was I, I did see a video where someone in the crowd yelled, go back to Russia. And the, you know, any, anything, you know, xenophobic that you have to experience on the court. And I think if he felt like that's why they were rooting against him is because he was Russian uh, that that would have been very very difficult, I think, for anybody to really deal with emotionally. Yeah, no, I I had not heard that, uh, and that's very unfortunate. And listen, you you as a as a as a top flight player are going to deal with these circumstances playing all over the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that somehow you got it at a certain point. You have to summon it from within yourself, and you have to use that. And I thought, like, I sort of saw that with him when he won the time when he came from five three down in the tiebreak, which was one of his great sequences. I thought mm-hmm. because Nurapa really didn't do anything wrong in those last four points. And Medvedev had a return at his feet, forced Rafa into a lunging volley, forehand volley error, hit a swing volley winner, and then a perfect backhand pass down the line. Those were the four points. So mm-hmm. I'm saying. Of, okay, look what he did after that, Gil. He raised his arms in a way slightly defiantly toward the crowd, like, okay, I'm here to win. You may not like it, but I just won the second set. And I, I feel like when he's in his best frame of mind, that's that's what he does. He sort of, uh, it, it, it's, it's not totally dissimilar to Djokovic. You know, you kind of use that as leverage. You use it to say, okay, you, you, you don't appreciate me, but I, I, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you go home saddened because i'm i'm out here to win so yeah, yeah incidents like the one you described you, you you have to have total sympathy for that but it may not be the last time he'll see that but that doesn't mean that the crowd overall feels that way or that right. i mean i think the way he can turn this around in his mind i get the feeling gil the people around him you know that, that his wife and and coach and others are, are trying to get through to him and and he's a fascinating guy because there's a lot of charm there too. There's a lot of, of mm-hmm. honesty, and and yet I, I don't want I don't want to see him get in the habit of making himself the victim either. I, and I, I thought that I wish that he would have taken a few more questions about what led him to, to this point of view. Too too bad because uh, right. he, he does have many fine qualities. Uh, I agree with that, and and we'll get back to to Nadal uh, at some point in this conversation, but. For Medvedev on the maturity front, it's something that you've actually brought up to me before. Before he, I, I think before he was even a major champion, uh, we've discussed Medvedev's conduct on court and, and how he carries himself and the uh, occasional outbursts he has where he gets distracted. And yeah. we, we saw that a couple times in this tournament against Tsitsipas, yeah. against, against Kyrgios. And, um, you know, in the final, perhaps his, his mind went wayward as well. 
And uh, I, I think there are two angles to this one. It probably hurts his tennis on a, on a pretty regular basis, but two, I think, especially the way he, he treats officials and umpires. That's the kind of thing that is going to turn a crowd against you, in my opinion. So if you are going to be upset about the crowd not being against you, you need to take care of that and you need to start treating umpires better. You couldn't be more right. And that explosion, that that implosion, explosion, whatever we want to call it in the Sitsipas match, he was upset about thinking that Stefanos' father was coaching and he wanted the umpire to do something about it. And he's screaming at him, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. The interesting part of it is he did something that McEnroe would often do in, in his day after throwing tantrums it, to come in and say afterwards, that, that was a mistake. He mm-hmm. said, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done, you know, so he's good at kind of admitting that it, that, that some of the outbursts are not doing him any good and that he, that he, that his judgment was bad to allow it to happen. But the problem is it seems to resurface and, and then he gets all rattled again. And, and, and in this tournament, no doubt that, Maybe it finally caught up to him for all the reasons you cited, you know, that it, starting with the Kyrgios match, which was a very tough early rounder to deal with an Australian crowd and Nick playing up to them. So it's true that there were a lot of emotional moments, but one would have thought that once he got to two sets to love in the final and three, two love 40, that he, his, his mind would have just been, there would have been a certain tunnel vision that might've carried him to the triumph. On the other hand, it, I, I still think we must salute Nadal because he, uh, I mean, to play for five, think about it. We, we saw him play five hours, 53 minutes against Novak 10 years ago, lose heart, heart, heartbreakingly in five sets. And this time nearly as long, five hours and 24 minutes. And he, he's 10 years older. Instead of being 25, he's 35. And you just never would have known it. Now, he said, apparently, I heard Mary Carrillo mention on one of the other, uh, I think, an appearance she made on television that Nadal told the Spanish press, that at the end of the match, he was dust. I mean, I don't know exactly what he means by that because it didn't, it didn't show because even after he lost his serve from five, four 30 love and double fallen on the 30, 15 point that was crucial to break right back and serve it out of love. He, he, he looked like a pretty young man to me, the way he closed it out. So he, he certainly has a way of, of camouflaging what's, what's ever going on inside him. And, and I, and I think that's why this, this one will, will mean so much to him because this was the one that he should have lost. He probably should have won the Novak and Roger matches in 12 and 17. This one, when you're down two sets against a guy 10 years your junior and you haven't been playing very much tennis and your only real preparation was three quick matches in an ATP 250 event right before the Australian. It's, it's astounding what he did. Yeah, there was footage of, of Nadal going back to the locker room and just collapsing on the mat and just, just taking a taking a little bit of a, a rest on the floor. So I think when, when he turned to dust, maybe it was in that moment. Let's get to uh, the technical aspect a little bit more because I love delving into that stuff with you, Steve. The Medvedev serve against the Nadal return. I think it's safe to say the Nadal return got the better of things after the first set, um, especially because if you, you know, when you flip it around, Medvedev was making almost all of his returns until the fifth set, which, which was interesting. And one part of the match I can't explain is how many returns Medvedev missed backhand returns in the fifth set after making those returns the entire match. But I think for, 
for the latter four sets where which Nadal was in all four, Medvedev's serve was not generating the free points that it usually does. And uh, I'd love to know what you make of just the Nadal return on a hard court because it's generally, I think it's not put up there with Djokovic and Murray because it has a different style and he, he goes about it a different way, but in a match like this, it, it does, it, it is extremely effective against one of the great serves in the game. Great analysis. I, uh, here's, here's my thought. I, I felt like, I mean, let's, let's just take the five all in the fifth game as an example. And I do agree with you that after that first set, when, you think about it, Nadal is, it barely holds a couple of times to go 2-1 up, and then he loses five games in a row, loses 20 out of 25 points. He was obliterated in the first set, and he, mm-hmm. and, and he actually looked like an old man in the first set. He looked like he didn't think he could win, and physically he wasn't all there. That's what made this, again, so, so uh, astonishing from his end of the court. But to get back to the return, I think back to the Berrettini match that Nadal played, and there was a stretch where Berrettini – was finding the corners, was locating his serve perfectly, serving 135 on the lines. And he had five love games in a row, 23 points in a row from the middle of the third up to the middle of the fourth and really made a go of it. And then Rafa, in very timely, opportunistic fashion, got that one break at the end and and closed it out. Broke him at 3-4 and served it out. Great effort from him. I think you have to be deadly accurate against Rafa. And, and when Djokovic is serving his best, that happens too. If you're not really close to the lines, he has, he's so skilled, as you said, a very different kind of returner from Andy or from Novak, but he has a way of just lofting those returns, high trajectory, looping them deep down the middle and daring you to come up with something. And that was driving Medvedev a little bit nuts, I thought, throughout the, those last four sets, but particularly when it really counted in the fifth. And I, I, I think you're right in the way he just is underrated because he makes you serve in a deadly accurate fashion. And if you don't, and he gets his racket and makes good clean contact on it and he's read it in any way, it's going to come back and it's going to come back pretty deep, which wasn't always the case earlier in his career. I think he's better at that now. I think there were times earlier in his career where I felt he'd get the return back, but too short. And then a, a joke or a Federer or other guys could demolish it. Not, not now. That's not what was going on in this tournament. And I saw it against Berrettini and I saw it again against Medvedev. And I think that was frustrating Gil for Medvedev. He wanted and expected more free points. Yes. He had 23 aces, but he also faced 22 break points. They both did. He was constantly having to work so hard to hold his serve. And that, I think that definitely weighed heavily on his mind that Rafa, he did think going in and I, I did too that he was going to have some easier service games. He's the one that was having have the chance to cruise more on serve and then go to work on Rafa. And then in turn, as you said, his return went a bit off in the fifth for, uh, for reasons I, I can't explain. And he was never, as you know, in the press conferences, they're not asked off en- enough technical details like the one you just brought up. But I think Rafa's deep returns off first serves that he could read that weren't close enough to the lines or maybe needed a little, a few more MPHs, as they say, uh, mm-hmm. that, that he, he makes you serve almost perfectly is how I look at it. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. And as far as the first ball goes, I, I love the point about Nadal kind of lofting the ball a little bit slower and a little bit higher Yeah, because, you know, there's a couple of areas where I thought we saw that Nadal is technically ahead of Medvedev. One of those areas I think is, 
is attacking that first forehand, generating pace and aggression off of that first ball and just pace generation in general. And then the next thing that stood out is how comfortable Nadal has gotten approaching the net, you know, coming forward to finish points. Whereas Medvedev got so many of those opportunities and he was unable to finish, whether he was getting past, whether Nadal was was countering against him and and turning defense into offense in these points. But but just a huge difference between, you know, the Nadal forehand and even the backhand in this match and the ability for him to attack short balls and finish these points where Medvedev, I think he he's great in defense. He's great in neutral. He has trouble finishing, especially compared to Nadal. Very couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. I mean, the other problem, of course, is that Rafa technically is a far better volleyer than Medvedev. His technique is a lot better. So he also trusts himself when he gets up there that he can make the low volleys. I mean, the match point volley is a perfect example. Yes, it was a relatively easy volley, but what did he do with it? He carved that backhand volley low down the line into a very awkward spot. So there was no way that Medvedev was going to, on the run, be able to pass and Medvedev could barely touch it. And, and Medvedev, if you think about it, there were some volleys that he did not put away. He, he, he's, in, he's awkward up there. He can get close to the net. He can intimidate you by closing in, but the technique is not that good. And then sometimes in the transition, he's also not quick enough to close. And a, a couple of things like that hurt him. But I think Rafa's tra- tra- transitions better than Medvedev and definitely... Uh, has superior technique on forehand and backhand volleys, far superior. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.